The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Imagine a virus, the most terrifying virus you can, and then imagine that you and you alone have the cure. But if your ultimate goal is power, how best to use such a weapon? It's at this point in our story that along comes a spider. He is a man seemingly without a conscience for whom the ends always justify the means, and it is he who suggests that their target should not be an enemy of the country, but rather the country itself. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So imagine a virus that you can use for gaining power. A man seemingly without a conscience for whom the ends always justify the means and who suggests that the target of his virus should not be an enemy of the country, but the country itself. What a ridiculous notion, right? Or maybe I should say, what a ridiculous nation. Yet it exists. It is Canada, and its leader, a man named Justin Trudeau, is in every way a man seemingly without a conscience for whom the end always justifies the means, and who suggests that the target of his virus should be the country itself. Many would argue that Trudeau is an enemy of the people, and I believe that to be the actual true case. However, what if I were to suggest to you that Trudeau, even as an enemy of the people, is also a perfectly legitimate representative of the Canadian public? I ask this question because I'm faced with the most inconvenient of all truths, that our openly fascist Prime Minister may indeed fit that bill perfectly. Today I'm going to share some words with you that are utterly haunting about how Canada got into the mess that it's in today. And let me warn you in advance, what I'm about to share with you is very likely not what you will be expecting, but it may be the most disturbing and descriptive analysis that I have yet encountered with regard to why and how the New World Order and the Great Reset were made possible. The bad news begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, I had no idea, seriously, until just a few moments ago, that I would be kicking off the show with this. As I was contemplating what I might discuss today, I'd already more or less decided to redirect our recent focus on Ukraine back to what's happening here in Canada, especially in light of the unprecedented criticisms of Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau by various European politicians over the recent past weeks, about which we'll have more to say later. But what could I say about Canada and its pitiful Prime Minister that I haven't already expressed over the past few years or so? And no doubt will again. Well, sure enough, there I am, sitting in my office in front of my computer, and I swing around to look at any books I might have sitting on the bookshelves behind me, and the first book that caught my eye was titled, Farewell, the Peaceful Kingdom. 
It is the name of a monumental book, it's around 750 pages in hardcover, written by historian Joe Armstrong back in 1995 on the subject of Canada's inevitable self-destruction, as the title of the book implies. But more significantly and personally for me, I got to know Joe Armstrong quite well back in the 1990s, and he had spoken at dinners and events sponsored by the Freedom Party of Ontario, one of them actually having been a fireside chat held at my own home, and yes, in front of a real fireplace in our large family room. And Joe also had a couple of his essays published in some of Freedom Party's own newsletters. And of course, we were selling and giving away as prizes copies of Farewell the Peaceful Kingdom at the time. And as it happens, I think I still have about three or four remaining autographed copies in my possession. So here it is, almost 30 years later, and I went to the book on my shelf and I opened it to page one. Introduction. Now, I read those words before. A long time ago, when the book was originally published, and as much as I agreed with the message at the time, back in the 90s, it all seemed, well, you know, kind of academic, strictly intellectual, very theoretical, and certainly not an unavoidable reality, much less a prophecy. Well, when I started reading them again today, in 2022, just a little while ago, I got the chills. And I just knew that there was no way I could continue with today's show without freaking you guys out just as much as I was. Suddenly, every sentence seemed to take on a whole new meaning, since it has become impossible not to see the literal examples of everything he was writing about in plain view today. So if anyone's still wondering just what's going on in the world today, and in Canada in particular, historian Joe Armstrong explained it explicitly and unambiguously several decades ago. As you will now discover, along with me, as I quote, Canada is no longer the peaceful kingdom. In less than half a century, without a military conquest, a civil war, or a natural catastrophe, the northern half of the North American continent has devoured itself in a conflict over values. Only one province in the Federation, Quebec, which makes up just less than 25% of the whole, demonstrates any national ambition. After 30 years of interminable wrangling, Canada is a nation in name only. In the decades to come, historians will try to pinpoint the causes for the country's disintegration. As the Federation was once a land of promise, they will pass many judgments and attribute considerable blame. Because of the shame, guilt, and betrayal involved, a great deal of the record is buried already. Many people will rationalize the tragedy as inevitable, will say that there was nothing they could have done anyway. This group is to be simultaneously envied their unearned peace of mind and held in contempt for their arrogance. This simple fact underlies any examination of the disintegration of law and order, the destruction of the environment, global insolvency, famine, and the terrible increase of disease and suffering for so many. The remnant empires of the Western democracies are particularly under siege. The Judeo-Christian world of our forefathers has passed away. Western man, having turned his attention inward, now worships himself as a superior being. The nation-state and even the multinational corporations are proving puny warriors against the pantheistic feudalism of the tribe and the collective. By some terrible twist of fate, Western civilization has managed to resurrect the 12th century, an age of hopeless turmoil and stagnation. 
Ours is an anti-intellectual age. We live in a joyless world of shifting people and values. If the movement of individuals from place to place was the paradigm of the 20th century, then massive migration is what nations face for the 21st. In the 1990s, nations collapsed with such ease that cartographers have to revise their atlases and globes as often as brokers juggle publicly traded securities. Near the end of the century, in 1993, there were 29 wars on the planet. Almost all of them were civil ones. This global upheaval is characterized as much by the end of the smallest indicators of civility as it is by terrorism, barbarism, and open warfare. In many societies, particularly in the West, the vulgar has become the ideal. Western man mocks decency as the stuff of sport and ridicule. The portents of this lesser age surround us. Even the most trivial patterns of daily human behavior prove dramatically that mankind has learned little from recent history. The world witnesses the passage of the last years of this century without passion or commitment. Sacred monuments are desecrated, not by terrorists, extremists, radicals, and vandals, but by people bored to death. Perhaps the answers are all trite and mundane now because no one poses important questions. Everyone is rude. Bishop Williams of Wycombe, 1324-1404, educator and founder of two colleges at Oxford, held that manners maketh the man. Edmund Burke, 1729-1797, observing the effects of the French Revolution, wrote in 1790, The age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. Increasingly, it is evident that technocrats will be the only ones with great wealth, while the bulk of humankind sinks to a level of slavery previously unknown. In his trenchant work, Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology, Neil Postman writes, It is to be expected that the winners will encourage the losers to be enthusiastic about computer technology. That is the way of winners. They also tell them that their lives will be conducted more efficiently. But discreetly they neglect to say from whose point of view the efficiency is warranted or what might be its costs. For one thing, in cultures that have a democratic ethos, relatively weak traditions, and a high receptivity to new technologies, everyone's inclined to be enthusiastic about technological change, believing that its benefits will eventually spread evenly among the entire population. Where are the principles on which the Federation stands? Canadians endure a monstrous canon of slogans and dogma poured over them by an illiterate political class. This group knows nothing of the country's history and still less about individual freedom. As a result, Canada is not a democracy. It is nearly a totalitarian society, frighteningly close to a dictatorship. The proof is overwhelming. Canadians have no direct say in the constitutional or economic vision of their country. All three of the referendums conducted in Canadian history have been non-binding policy directives only. The two referendums on sovereignty issues conscription in 1942 and the constitutional referendum of 1992 have been ignored by the politicians. The citizens continue to be de-democratized by an entrenched autocracy, governments having consistently proved over many years that regardless of which party is in power, change, however limited, is out of the question. Canadian sovereignty no longer exists. In less than half a century, it has been squandered, given, or bargained away, all for a two-generation binge of high living. Canada's demise is certain. 
There is so little love of individual freedom among the majority of her citizens that her destruction is unavoidable now. Freedom is never debated here. It is taken as a given. That assumption alone will destroy the country. For the historian, the failure of the country's citizens to revolt in the face of the obvious is principle. Canada's leaders know this. For the vested interest in the personal gain of a very few, the will of most citizens has been consistently discriminated off the agenda by these leaders. Canadians are on the receiving end of a one-sided conversation from their governments, corporations, media, and educational institutions. While the country may survive superficially into the next century, it cannot recover from this assault on its original values. For anyone who holds personal freedom dear, for the talented, the hard-working, for the risk-taker, and the courageous, other societies will prove more and more attractive. Fewer and fewer citizens will settle for slogans as a reason to see their country continue. For a very long time now, the voice of dissident Canada has been muted. Citizens face a choice. Through zealous self-censorship, they can keep themselves politically correct. People can even choose to consider themselves so-called dissenters. Or they can remain true outcasts. This, as we shall see, applies even to what has been labeled grassroots movements, such as the Reform Party, which has become fatally infected with self-deception. Silence and cover-up rule every aspect of intellectual and institutional life in the country. So why this degeneration? The reasons are legion. While a colonial heritage tops the list, an impoverished educational environment runs a close second. In our academic environment, the capacity to think is never a consideration. It is, in fact, a liability. Myth and revisionist history can no longer withstand the demand for individual freedom sweeping the rest of the world. Alvin Toffler, who published Power Shift in 1990, is right. Canada hangs together by a thread. There is also the simple tragic fact that most people in this society have no idea what personal freedom is that it is a responsibility, not a right, that it demands constant vigilance and struggle, that it is not itself an institution, that it is not found in the corridors of the nation's courts, nor in the writings of prominent men and women, nor in the nation's constitution. It can only exist in the heart and soul of each citizen devoted to preserving it." End quote. Wow. There's a lot more to this introduction that I didn't get into, a lot more details. But he ends with this paragraph, and I quote again. I began this work angry with Canada's politicians and leaders and convinced that Canadian unity was really threatened, that national unity by itself was an objective worth monumental effort and dedication. I am no longer convinced of even the relevance of such an objective. After 10 years of struggle to document what has happened, I find myself far more disillusioned with the general populace than I am with Canada's leaders. End quote. Ouch. <laughs> well, that was a painful and inconvenient truth, if ever there was one. And that was written decades before Justin Trudeau was voted into office by that same general populace that Joe Armstrong was referring to. Which brings us to the next chapter of today's show. I wasn't originally sure how to best present the following collage of audio bites, all concerning Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And if you haven't heard, 
and I know that many haven't, remarkably, Trudeau has been roundly condemned by many European politicians over the way he handled the pretended COVID crisis in Canada. Now, of course, on some social media platforms, many of these comments have already made the rounds. But remarkably, most average Canadians are completely unaware of how their leader is being judged abroad, or worse, they're unaware of how they are being judged by their own leader right here at home in Canada. Now, most of these clips were taken from Viva Fry's website, David Fryheit, from two separate postings he compiled. One he named Five Minutes of Trudeau Getting Roasted by European Parliament, and the other he titled Trudeau is an Awful Person. <laughs> wow, does that say it all? But I have rearranged them and added a few of my own audio bites, some from other sources like Canada Poly, and a few I found floating around in a folder on my computer marked Trudeau. <laughs> but here was my dilemma. Which would have the greater impact? Hearing Trudeau's words first and then listening to the reactions? Or listen to the reactions first and then test to see if those reactions were justified by hearing Trudeau's words? I chose the second option. So it'll be on the return side of our upcoming bumper that we'll hear Trudeau in his own words, while on this side of the bumper, are some of the reactions of various European politicians to Trudeau. The first two voices you'll hear are those of English translators in the European Parliament, followed by the rest who are heard in their original voices speaking in English. Dear colleagues, dear citizens, Prime Minister Trudeau, freedom, the right of choice, the right to freedom, the right to work, for many of us, these are basic, fundamental human rights that millions of people across the Europe and across the world have given their lives. In order to defend our rights and the rights of our children, rights that we have fought for for centuries, many of us, including me, myself personally, are ready and willing to risk our own freedom and to lay down our own lives. Unfortunately, Today among us, there are also those who want to trample those basic rights. Canada, once a symbol of the modern world, is uh, under your quasi-liberal leadership and over the few past few months it has become a symbol of violating basic human rights and civic freedoms. We have witnessed women being trampled by horses, single parents being, uh, their, their bank accounts are being blocked so that they cannot pay for their children's schools, they cannot pay for medicine, they cannot pay their, pay their electricity bills, their water bills, they cannot pay the debts they have, their mortgages. For you, maybe these are liberal methods. But for many citizens across the world, this is a dictatorship of the worst kind. Be assured that the citizens of the world, when united, can stop any regime that wants to abolish the freedom of citizens, whether by bombs or by harmful uh, medicine. Thank you. Honourable Members, we keep discussing here our European democratic values that underpin all of our actions. I worked in Syria and Pakistan for many years as a diplomat and therefore 
value democracy very highly. Now, the invitation to Canadian PM Justin Trudeau is an invitation to someone who's been trampling on democratic rights, who's been uh, cracking down on people who protested against disproportionate corona measures, people who were supporting a non-sanctioned movement coming under criticism. So clearly the values of uh, democracy are being uh, despised uh, by this individual. Let us not give someone like this any speaking time in this house of democracy. We've always been at the forefront of speaking up for those who have been oppressed. We recognise the interconnectivity of the countries of Europe and the world at large and that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We've had calls in this House to address serious human rights abuses occurring in all places over the world, from China in the East to here in the West, and addressing the issues in our own country as well. So I find it odd that we've heard nothing of what has been a well-publicised, high-profile, peaceful protest being violently suppressed and dispersed by armed government forces. Ranks of uniformed and armoured military figures, stripped of their badges and ID tags, converged on protesters. An officer on horseback trampled over a disabled woman. Around 200 arrests were made and over 60 vehicles seized by the state. It sounds like something you'd see from Russia or actions which we'd condemn in Hungary or Poland, but instead it is happening in the supposedly liberal democracy of Canada. And so no condemnation has been forthcoming. In order to legally permit this level of force, Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau invoked the Emergency Act of 1988, the first time this, this act has ever been used since it replaced the War Measure Act of 1914. And not being satisfied with merely dispersing protesters, the state froze the finances associated with certain individuals and companies believed to be involved in the protests. These are people who committed no crime, who has been not convicted lawfully in court, and who the government decided to punish anyway, because they might have been connected with a protest which was inconvenient to the government. It was an unprecedented act by the state against its citizens, which should be roundly condemned. And so, Leader, I'm asking you to write to the Canadian Ambassador, Nancy Smith, and condemn the excessive force used by the government on the overreach that is happening there to its citizens. Authoritarianism is a threat to democracy, no matter whose foot the boot is on. Thank you. It would have been more appropriate for Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, to address this House according to Article 144, an article which was specifically designed to debate violations of human rights, democracy and the rule of law, which is clearly the case with Mr. Trudeau. And with the Prime Minister of Canada, the way he's behaving right now, he's exactly like a tyrant, like a dictator. He's like Ceausescu in Romania. If even you doubt, if you raise doubts about the vaccines, you're outcasted. What's the difference between what he does and what happened under the Inquisition? See, on one side they say, well, we should not believe in God, but on the other side they say, believe in science. We don't have to. Science is not about belief. Science is about measurements, conclusions, hypotheses, and arguments. 
We got to a point right now where even if you say something, if you raise any doubts, you're already considered, you know, as whatever, you know. They label you in very different ways. This is not okay. And I have to tell you, you know, that I, when I saw the protest in Canada, you know, the way the truckers over there <coughs> reacted, you know, I got in touch with some of them, others contacted me, I congratulated them, and I want to use this opportunity to thank them. And I hope this movement for freedom and for rights is spreading all around the world. Because at the end of the day, we have to make sure that all these elected officials, they understand that they were elected in those offices to work for the people, not to behave like masters of slaves. Thank you. Hey everyone, today is Bell Let's Talk Day. It's a day to be open about our mental health, to reach out to our family and friends, to check in our neighbors and coworkers. And after the past couple of years, it's more important than ever that we be there for one another. So today and every day, let's talk to each other about our mental health and let's listen to each other. If you make a choice, a personal choice, to not get vaccinated, then I will have no sympathy for you when you come to me and said, oh, but I can't go out to a restaurant with my friends, or I'm not being allowed to go to the gym, or my employer uh, is telling me I have to continue to work from home. Uh, you don't have a right to endanger my kids and endanger us all of future lockdowns and risk all of us having a slower recovery. By speaking directly to kids once again. I know many of you are in virtual school again. Uh, many of you have made more sacrifices over Christmas, over the holidays, um, not seeing your friends, not seeing your loved ones, having to hunker down, having to help out around the house as your parents uh, are working virtually. This is not easy. And I know uh, almost half of kids across this country have gotten uh, their vaccine from uh, ages 5 to 12. We need to get more, so please ask your parents if you can get vaccinated. Getting vaccinated protects yourself, protects your family, protects your grandparents, protects vulnerable people, but it also supports our frontline workers who are working incredibly hard. Our nurses and doctors and people in hospitals who are dealing with a rise in cases. We know kids across this country you've been doing the right things over these past long years and it sucks but you've been amazing, and we need to keep doing everything we can to get through this. When someone comes into a restaurant, they'll know they won't be sitting beside a table of people who are unvaccinated. When you go into a gym, when you go to a movie theater, you need to know that if you've done the right things, you get to be safe. You get to be rewarded for having done the right things. That's what it's all about. And those people who still hesitate, who still resist, well, they won't get to enjoy the same things that those who've done their part for others. It seems like a very logical thing. It seems like a very obvious thing. If you joined the protests because you're tired of COVID, you now need to understand that you are breaking laws. After discussing with cabinet and caucus, after consultation with premiers from all provinces and territories, 
after speaking with opposition leaders, the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. The police will be given more tools to restore order in places where public assemblies can constitute illegal and dangerous activities, such as blockades and occupations as seen in Ottawa, the Ambassador Bridge, and elsewhere. We're not using the Emergencies Act to call in the military. Not only are Canadians tired of this pandemic, of, uh, of the challenges we're facing, but they're also, of course, tired of the restrictions, tired of the rules, tired of the lockdowns. That is understandable. But do you know what helps lift restrictions? Do you know what helps move beyond lockdowns? Vaccinations. When Canadians get vaccinated, including with our vaccine mandates that ensure the federal public service and anyone getting on planes or trains uh, are vaccinated, that has helped move forward, keep Canadians safe, and most importantly, to keep our frontline health workers who've been heroes during this pandemic from being overwhelmed. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other, who know that following the science and stepping up to protect each other is the best way to continue to ensure our freedoms, our rights, our values as a country. Vladimir Putin has uh, come to believe that he can lie with impunity, that he can violate international law with impunity, and then he can do whatever he wants in the interests of the Russian state. And what we are demonstrating with this strong, united response is that is simply not true. That democracies can and will push back against autocracy, autocracies. Yes, there is a small fringe element in this country that is angry, that doesn't believe in science, that is lashing out with racist, misogynistic attacks. But Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians, are not represented by them. And I know will not allow those voices those special interest groups, those protesters who can, I don't even want to call them protesters, those anti-vaxxer mobs to dictate how this country gets through this pandemic and how we recover our economy free from lockdowns where people can get back to work and back to doing the things they want to do and keep our kids safe. They don't get to dictate policy of this government. Trudeau has certainly earned and deserved all of the criticism we heard from politicians abroad, who, by the way, were all dismissed in the fake news media as fringe right-wing extremists. So what does it tell you when people who use words like freedom and democracy are labeled right-wing extremists? I think what it tells us is that the left does not represent freedom or democracy. Isn't that what they're telling us?
And in everything Trudeau says, you can hear the contempt he has for Canadians everywhere. He perfectly exemplifies Joe Armstrong's observation that in Canada, Canadians themselves have no say whatever in the constitution or economic vision of their country. Farewell the peaceful kingdom. Trudeau's the king and the rest of us are the king's dummies. <laughs> yes, Trudeau is indeed an awful person. Despicable and deplorable in every sense of those words, as I've said before. From a rational point of view, I... <laughs> He's a complete wacko. So what is he doing as Canada's Prime Minister? How could such an awful person ever have achieved the leadership of a country? If you listen to him, he doesn't sound like a Prime Minister. He sounds like an advertising sales agent. He's just reading scripts. He's doing ads. He's, he's like a commercial. And a country that would elect someone as awful as him must, by implication, be a nation of awful people. Not all of them, of course, but at least the people who have been supporting him, which seems to be a recurring observation we've been forced to face over the past pandemic years. saw this item in the paper only the week following the end of the protests in Ottawa. It appeared on February 19th in our local London Free Press, and the heading read, Protests Make Me Fear for Any Freedom from Violence, written by Selma Toba, who apparently is a representative of the Muslim community in London. And she writes, and I quote, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't extremely concerned about Canada's direction right now. I've been watching the convoy that settled in Ottawa and its sympathetic arms closely during the last few weeks. I've done so from the perspective of someone from a community that has faced repeated continuous white supremacist violence, especially in the last five years. I've got to stop here for a moment. You know, so she openly admits that her, her perspective is not objective and has nothing to do with what was happening in Ottawa. She's playing a fake victim. To what white supremacist violence over the past five years is she referring? And if it's repeated and continuous, don't you have a smartphone to record this evidence, you know, some sort of evidence of this? Again, not a single example of what she's talking about. And this is common to all of these left-wing diatribes. But she continues, I've always thought the appropriate number of white supremacists at a rally was zero. None is still too many. As American political activist Angela Davis said, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must actively be anti-racist. The absence of racism is insufficient. Listen to this. We must actively oppose and prevent it from rising among us, end quote. Now, this is so patently insane that I'm going to take it seriously just to illustrate a point. If it is true that I must actively oppose and prevent racism from rising among us, well, the first place to start is to condemn everything and every person who holds any views on the left because the left is all about collectivism and identity politics and anti-individualism. It's only in that type of an environment that racism and groupthink can even arise. Individualists do not think in terms of group identity. Selma Toba is a complete and open racist by every word she uttered in this article. She continues, Convoy participants would seem to disagree. The Confederate flag and swastikas have been spotted, end quote. 
Yes, and the convoy participants removed the Antifa infiltrators immediately. Therefore, to argue that the convoy participants would seem to disagree with this kind of activity is a lie. The activity being, of course, removing these people. Quote, some have a history of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic remarks and links to extreme far-right groups, end quote. Well, more leftist BS. Who? Name an anti-Semitic or Islamophobic remark made. What links to what extreme far-right groups? I mean, what a filthy liar this writer is. I, I, I have to say it. This is all abstractions and no facts. Complete hate-mongering. Quote, Moreover, weaponry seized at the Coutts Alberta blockade this week included body armor with a patch linked to an emerging right-wing militia network, end quote. What a non sequitur. Talk about bringing in something that has nothing to do with this. Again, more outright false news. The police themselves had already told the public that that event, whatever it was, had nothing whatever to do with Ottawa or any of the trucker convoys. Or maybe this is the only way Salmatoba could conjure up some way to use the term right-wing again. I don't know. Quote, For communities like mine that have experienced white supremacist violence, the threat is not abstract. It is current and ongoing. The day the convoy settled in Ottawa coincided with the fifth anniversary of the Quebec mosque shooting. A vigil organized by Canadians United Against Hate in Ottawa was moved online because of safety concerns for the planned in-person gathering. Friday, prayers at a Windsor mosque were canceled because of the convoy that settled at the border, raising concerns for the congregation's safety. End quote. Oh, wow. White. Supremacist. Violence. Which of these three terms is Toba most obsessed with and why? What she's saying is patently irrational on its face. Implied in the constant repetition of these floating meaningless abstractions is that violence experienced by Muslims is never perpetrated by non-whites, black people, Asian people, or other Muslims, which is the reality of the global situation, or even green people for that matter. None of them ever perpetrate violence, express racism, or consider themselves supreme. Only white people do that. You know, the race that freed the slaves. Those people. Quote, Most frightening are elected officials stoking the flames. Randy Hillier is probably one of the most concerning politicians to join the protests. The Lanark Frontenac Kingston MPP tweeted a photo of gasoline canisters and explosive captioned with, Let freedom ring. I and many others on social media wondered how this was not considered a threat of violence, end quote. Well, probably because it wasn't. Not everyone sees the world through the perspective of someone from a community that has faced repeated continuous white supremacist violence. Jesus, over and over and over and over again. In fact, the recent police charges against Hillier are again proving to be based on politics and ideology, not on any criminal behavior. Worse, Toba suggests that Hillier is stoking the flames. Well, of what? Does she mean racism? Because that's wacko. Does she mean stoking the flames of violence? Yeah, just like Donald Trump was stoking the flames of violence on January 6th last year. You know, it would be impossible to list all of the many instances where both those extreme right-wingers are on record explicitly preaching against violence. The entire tactical strategy of the Ottawa convoy was based on this principle. No violence allowed. That was the only way to expose the government. If they had violence, their whole plan would have failed. 
It was essential to demonstrating who the real violent actors were. And they proved it. They demonstrated it. Trudeau, his government, and the police. Quote, Others include conservative leadership candidate Pierre Polyver and CPC interim leader Candace Bergen. While they have disavowed symbols of hate and are backtracking, it's hard to see how support from a major party doesn't embold organizers and supporters while signaling a hard shift to the right for the party, end quote. What Selma Toba considers a hard shift to the right is laughable. The CPC is as left as it gets. It always will be. Just because it's different from the liberals and the NDP doesn't mean it's not just as left. Just ask Joe Armstrong. But to suggest that even the CPC is somehow backtracking on its support of symbols of hate, that's a hateful thing to do because it's not true. They weren't backtracking. They were responding to false allegations regarding symbols of hate, whatever the hell those are supposed to be. And I'm not a supporter of the CPC, but geez. Quote, Furthermore, the Ottawa situation has seen a poor response from law enforcement. Amnesty International issued a statement concerned about harassment and violence reported by residents and noting how violently indigenous and racialized protesters are treated by law enforcement in comparison. End quote. Oh, obsessed, just obsessed with race. As everyone who is actually following the events in Ottawa knows, the crime rate in the city dropped to the floor, and law enforcement actually worked with the truckers. And by the way, during the Black Lives Matter protests and Antifa riots, police kissed the asses of racialized protesters, which again is a politicized term for non-whites. And just look at how police treated peaceful mostly white, but not all, protesters after Trudeau ordered his agents of force to enforce his fascist rules. Everything this woman says is the opposite of reality. And, and, and right here, I have to detour to a couple of personal observations made to lawyer David Freiheit on his Viva Fry show of March 25th by Ottawa convoy lawyer, attorney Keith Wilson, who is now representing a lot of the convoy truckers in following up with charges in the courts. But he told an interesting story to Viva Fry, nothing to really do with charges. When Wilson first arrived in Ottawa, based on the Ottawa news reports he was hearing and reading about, he was expecting to have to walk a long, long distance to get to his downtown Ottawa hotel reservation since he expected the downtown to be in a state of chaos and impassable. But instead, he was driven right downtown to the front door of his hotel without any traffic interruptions along the way. And right away, he knew this was a red flag. But then the more interesting observation he made, and this relates to Selma Toba's poor response from law enforcement comment, was that each night, members of Antifa would go down the streets where the convoy trucks were parked and vandalize those trucks. So convoy organizers got together and actually caught these vandals and called 911 to have the police arrest them and take them away, which police gladly did. Then to his amazement, Wilson noted that both the media and politicians were reporting that the convoy was a source of criminal activity and that three charges had been laid in connection with this activity. But nowhere was it said that it was the truckers themselves who were the victims of the crime or that it was the truckers themselves who contacted the police to turn the villains in. So now you know why Selma Toba doesn't like the response from law enforcement. Yeah. 
But I'm not done with her diatribe yet. She continues, quote, And recent reporting from the CBC has uncovered that some convoy leaders have RCMP and military training, increasing the effectiveness of their organizing, end quote. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's why they had such a great relationship with the local police. That's why the Ottawa protests were so peaceful and so nonviolent. And what's wrong with organizing effectively? The CBC uncovered this? <laughs> How? Was somebody actually hiding the information? Or did the CBC actually, like, you know, go on social media? Wow. Amazing investigative work. Did they maybe check out an episode of Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson or Mark Friesen or Dan Dix or Stu Peters, Polly St. George, Alex Jones, X-22, or even this show? <laughs> Good God. The CBC of all propagandist sources. She continues, quote, These details, coupled with the systemic racism and violence... <laughs> can you take this? No, I'll, I'll, I'll get through it. These details, coupled with the systemic racism and violence many racialized communities face regularly, have made many of us feel we have no recourse, threatened by both state and non-state actors, end quote. This is a complete breakdown of all connection to reality. This woman is obsessed with racism, which of course has to be fought, even if it doesn't exist. Wow. This obsession is chronic and very deeply disturbed. How No one has spotted it or told her about it. I don't know how that can happen. But get this conclusion, quote, Freedom, quote-unquote, as always, seems to be this convoy's rallying cry. Many in the leaked give-send-go convoy donor list express the belief their freedoms have been restricted by pandemic public health measures. I understand the frustrations with the lockdowns, the overall sense of loss, and lack of government support. What I don't see, however, is how any movement with explicit bigotry can lead us to a better, safer society. If anything, this movement has me worried for my freedom to live without fear of violence as a Muslim in Canada, end quote. This statement is simply stunning, let alone that it appeared in a recognized periodical. A movement with explicit bigotry. What pure lying filth. And she's speaking as a Muslim, as if that justifies her lying? I should introduce her to a Muslim friend of mine who would consider this kind of talk to be offensive in the extreme, let alone be representative of his point of view. Which, I would guess, is why Selma Toba would label him extreme right-wing. And I want to know, what do Muslims like her call Muslims who support individual freedom? Racist? What argument would she have? That's the only one she's used so far. And of course, Selma Toba is a community development worker at the London Intercommunity Health Center and has been active in a number of Muslim community organizations in the city, says the note at the bottom of her article. Wow. If her community activity is reflective of her personal prejudices and intolerances, the damage she could be doing not only to her Muslim community, but to relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, only white of course, could be monumental. Muslim or not, she is one of the many Canadians described earlier by Joe Armstrong. On the one hand, it's, this is not just Canadian, this is becoming international. This is becoming a tendency throughout the world, one which George Orwell remarked upon when he wrote 1984 back in 1950-whatever, um, that the government is coming down to control everything 
right down to what you do in your own house. We're living in a world now where the government is micromanaging every aspect of citizen life, controlling what they do, who they see, what they wear, what they force their children to wear, what they do with their children, um, while simultaneously controlling or seeking to control the very information that they can absorb and while simultaneously controlling the very information that they can express, and more so in Canada. When you make criticizing the government itself becomes criminalized, where, what was it that Justin Trudeau said? Creating a sentiment that contradicts or undermines the authority of government? You, the government went from being the, the, a necessary evil, but the least amount possible of it, to being a parent that I never asked for, that I don't want, and that thinks it gets to micromanage citizen life the way an overbearing, abusive parent governs and rules over their children. Uh, anyway, so that's it. So Russell Brand is talking about Bill C-11, which is the new law in Canada that, um, you know, wants to prioritize good content, um, suppress bad content, govern the internet and social media accounts the way the Broadcast Act governs uh, radio and television, impose requirements for Canadian content, which would require social media platforms operating in Canada to suppress or promote content, both of which is a form of censorship. Promoting content is a form of censorship. It might be, maybe you call it positive censorship, but when you promote unnaturally, uh, when it's not what people are interested in that determines what they view, you are censoring uh, invert, inversely, what you are, you know, inversely to what you are promoting. And then when you suppress, it's just suppression. And then creating requirements, you got to, you got to put out X, Y, and Z content to be Canadian as if they've ever um, applied that consistently and impose financial penalties if you don't. This is the way for the government to rein in free speech on the internet, which is the last bastion of free speech to, I'll say, condemn, criticize, uh, to, to go after this government for the most egregious violations of charter rights I've, you know, I can imagine have ever been seen in the free world. People like, well, you, you, you still can go on the internet and complain about the government, so they can't be that tyrannical. Uh, you, you can do it until they decide that your protest is uh, mischief, and then they lock you up, and then, and then deprive you of your right to go online and criticize the government. They deprive you of a right to start fundraisers so that you can fundraise movements that might have the object of criticizing the government. Tell you, you know, Canada finds a way to release criminals and lock up pastors and then wonders why it has a spate of violent crimes against churches, which the government doesn't, doesn't refer to as a hate crime. Right, go, go figure that logic out. Fueled by the media, fear and panic spread quickly, fracturing and dividing the country until at last the true goal comes into view. Before the St Mary's crisis, no one would have predicted the results of the election that year, no one. And then not long after the election, lo and behold, a miracle. Some believed it was the work of God himself, 
but it was a pharmaceutical company controlled by certain party members that made them all obscenely rich. A year later, several extremists are tried, found guilty and executed while a memorial is built to canonize their victims. But the end result, the true genius of the plan, was the fear. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government, and through it, our politician was ultimately appointed to the newly created position of High Chancellor. The rest, as they say, is history. And history continues to be made each and every day. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. A quick story. I was recently reminiscing with Robert Vaughn about why, when we were at the PPC convention in Gatineau, Quebec in 2019, we chose to remain silent with regard to telling any of the PPC candidates what their realistic electoral expectations should be. (laughs) Shall we tell them? (laughs) Nah, they wouldn't have believed us anyway. We knew the reality of the situation based on our decades of experience with and exposure to the Canadian public, particularly with regard to our electoral experiences with the Provincial Freedom Party of Ontario. And sure enough, when the PPC results came in, we were right on the money with our expectations, but a lot of PPC candidates were quite disappointed or taken by surprise. One of those candidates was David Freiheit of Viva Fry, who only this past Monday revealed what you're about to hear now. It speaks to the reality cited by Joe Armstrong and experienced by yours truly, that those who value freedom in Canada are few and far between. Someone said, Viva, the look on your face when you realized you may have won your riding, but I wonder what your face would have looked like when your naive Naivete realizes he had a snowball's chance at Deputy PM. I can tell you exactly when it occurred. It occurred on the on the roof of my house when we were watching the results come in, and I was like, "My goodness, I never had a chance, did I?" There was never a chance, and I was like, "Holy cows, I'm an idiot." No chance, no chance, because people don't people don't even know what's going on in the news. I had one person when I was hanging up my posters, clearly purple posters, clearly not red liberal posters, say. You're running with the Liberal Party. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm running with the PPC. And they said, well, I'm voting Liberal anyhow. Didn't even know the colors of the party they knew they were voting for. But I mean, it's the greatest, it's the greatest branding of all time. If you vote for Liberal, even if the leader's acting like a total tyrant, a total dictator, you get to call yourself Liberal. I am Liberal. I just believe that I own your body. I own your children's body. I get to tell you when you can work, where you can go, who you can see, what you can read, what you can say. But I'm liberal because I'm called liberal. Freedom is not just a beautiful thing. It's a necessary thing. You know, there's a, there's a reason why animals in zoos, when they're in captivity, they engage, they, they, they revert to this... Um, repetitive behavior, you know, walking in circles, constant nodding, if you've ever seen elephants do it, the more intelligent, and I say that with, without being a speciesist, the more intelligent the animal, the more you notice this behavior when, there's, when their captivity is sufficiently restricted, restrained. I went to the Bronx Zoo. It was either the Brooklyn Zoo or the Bronx Zoo where there was a zebra in an enclosure and the backdrop was like a crappy painting of the savanna. And that, that zebra was like, just swaying its head. 
it, it, it was depressing. But hu humans are no different. You lock people in houses and you lock people in small apartments and you take away their jobs and then you think, you, you think, you're, you think that you're doing them a favor by compensating them $2,000 a month while simultaneously promoting online gambling. While they're locking people in their homes, the Quebec government is promoting online gambling. While they're shutting people out of rehab, out of AA, out of Gambling Anonymous, they're promoting online gambling and the premier of Quebec telling people to go have a drink. People need to de-stress. So freedom is not just beautiful. It's essential for humans. It's, it's what we are. Freedom, we are free, creative beings. And when you, when you strip people of that, you crush them and you destroy them. There's no question about it. And, and how, oh, it was the pandemic. It was COVID that did it. It had nothing to do with the lockdowns. It had nothing to do with the face masks. It had nothing to do with the social isolation. It had nothing to do with destroying what were the pillars of society, religion, family, school. It had nothing to do with that. It was, it was the pandemic. Now we can wash our hands of it and we can pretend to be the solution to the problem that we caused signed the government. Joe Armstrong wrote that freedom is not to be found in our laws, constitutions, and governments, but in the hearts and souls of individuals who value freedom. But to do that, freedom must first be found in the minds of individuals, individuals capable of creating the conditions that make freedom a possibility. That's the job of philosophy, because freedom is a lot more than just a feeling or a sentiment. It's a political and social condition that arises only when certain principles have been established and put firmly into place in a society's government, its courts, its schools, and its other institutions charged with the eternal vigilance required to maintain freedom. Interesting how Joe Armstrong observed that everyone is rude in describing the West's cultural zeitgeist. But being rude or impolite is one thing. Being intolerant of others because of differences in race or physical characteristics or because they value individual freedom is another. But when it comes to confronting ideologies, particularly those anti-freedom ideologies that some would force upon others, being rude is sometimes called for. So at the risk of being rude right now, it's time to break up our little get-together for this week until our return one week from now when you are invited to join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be See, that's what I love about people from Brooklyn is that they all have this attitude where it's like even if they think they're being helpful or nice, they're being rude. Like they can't <laughs> help it. It's just how they're wired. Like the other day, I was, uh, I was walking to the subway near my house. I was wearing a backpack, right? And from behind, I heard this voice go, um, hello, excuse me. <laughs> I turn around, there's this 12-year-old girl looking at me, annoyed. And I was like, yeah, can I help you? And she was like, um, yeah. Did you know your bag is all open and shit? <laughs> so
So I take my bag off, and she's right. It's like wide open. <laughs> my computer's about to fall out, everything. So I quickly, I put it down, I zip it up, and I look at her, and I say, oh my God, thank you. Thank you so much, that was so nice. Thank you. And she went, whatever, stupid. 